To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. This podcast is dedicated to Ginny's House, a nonprofit which offers free therapy for abused children. Learn more or support them at Ginny'sHouse.org. There's so much to talk about regarding how to deal with the unknown. Some of our toughest times in life are when we feel like we don't know what's going to happen next and we're afraid of what could happen next. In these times, we wish someone could tell us, here's what'll happen in one day, in one month, three months, in one year, and it's all going to be okay. I know that I've had times when I've felt this way, certainly during breakups of meaningful and important relationships. In this podcast, I'll offer a few concrete strategies to help with painful times of facing the unknown. As humans, we tend to assume the worst when we're facing unknowns. Why is that? Part of the answer is in how humans evolved. Imagine this scenario. Modern humans are about 200,000 years old. So let's imagine you're a human from 100,000 years ago. You step out of your cave in the morning, ready to pick some berries for breakfast. You glance out at the forest. You notice what perfect weather it is that day. You feel how nice the sunshine is on your skin. But then you notice a dark object in the woods. You squint but it's just too far away for you to figure out if it's moving or what it is. And until you can gather more information on what that object is, what's the best of these two choices? Should you jog straight into the woods to gather your berries? Or should you do nothing while you look, observe, and see if that object is a predator that wants you for breakfast. When we're facing the unknown, our brains make us assume the worst for this reason, for survival. Our brains were designed for survival and protection first. Assuming the worst made sense then, but it doesn't always make sense now. Before I share some concrete strategies on how to deal with the unknown, I'd like to do a quick review of what's happening in the body when we feel high levels of stress and our bodies are in fight or flight mode. Because the stress response is designed to help us survive the possible grizzly bear attack, the blood in our brains rushes away from the thinking part of our brain the prefrontal cortex, and goes to the limbic system of the brain when we're stressed. The limbic system 
is the part of the brain that deals with emotion and memory and instincts. As a result of this, we obsess about the thing we're stressed about for survival. So back then, our minds obsessively would flash, grizzly bear, grizzly bear, grizzly bear. And that made sense then. But in modern times today, an offensive remark from someone could trigger similar obsessive thoughts. So we'll have repeated flashes of someone's face and we'll hear the sound of our own voice saying, I can't believe he said that. And then you see his face again a minute later and you think, I can't believe he said that again. So another thing that happens when we are in this stress mode is that our backs tighten up as if we're getting ready to fight the grizzly bear or to run away. And with repeated chronic stress, this can lead to long-term back pain. And also, our bodies stop sending blood to our stomach because digestion isn't necessary for our survival, which can lead to stomach pain and possibly long-term stomach problems if the stress becomes repeated and chronic. And that's besides the cardiovascular problems that we'll create if we're constantly experiencing stress. So when your stress is bad, so bad that you can't think, I first advise people to do what they can to move out of this physical state of stress before moving on to mental strategies. So often, the first step is to move your body to fix your mind. Thus, my first recommendation is to engage in exercise that gets you to breathe heavily to break out of this mode. That is, if your doctor has cleared you for exercise. I incorporate quick bursts of exercise with heavy breathing to cope with bouts of stress. About a year ago last winter, I was really stressed about an unknown in my life. And on my worst days, I would run to the top of this big hill, which took about seven or eight minutes of uphill running before I could reach the top. At the top, I overlooked beautiful Lake Mohawk before turning around and enjoying the downhill back. In general, I try to do 10 minutes of running every morning as soon as I wake up, high-intensity interval training style. And I also do this when I'm particularly stressed. There's a warm-up, then I have a 60-second sprint or pickup, then jog at normal pace for a few minutes, and then a second 30-second sprint, and then the jog back to my house. I'm calmer and I have better perspective about whatever's bothering me after these brief bouts of exercise. I've mentioned before that when taking a course in clinical psychopharmacology with Dr. Marlon Hoover a few years ago, I asked him why, on a physiological level, on a brain level, why did my patients get so much relief when they ran or when they sprinted. And Marlin explained that in some ways the brain is very simple. 
when we're stressed and epinephrine's released, the brain thinks that we're facing a tiger. If we then sprint, our brain says, oh, she got away from the tiger and shuts down the stress response. He also mentioned that you can achieve the same by punching a punching bag, which would tell the brain, oh, she beat the tiger. These would be our fight or flight responses. Thank you, Marlon, for this simple and elegant explanation. Okay, I know that sprinting or finding a bike or finding a trampoline for some immediate high-intensity aerobic exercise isn't always practical. So my next suggestion, when your stress is bad, is to learn a deep breathing method. And this is something you can do anywhere. My favorite one, which I'll share now, is called square breathing. We used to think that when we're stressed, The only way to get out of it was just to wait it out. But thank goodness now we know there are other ways to move our bodies out of this mode. With square breathing, we only need one or two good squares to shift our bodies out of the sympathetic activation. That is the fight or flight mode that I mentioned before. So here's how to square breathe. I want you to imagine a square in your mind and the top of the square is the in-breath and it should be a deep breath as much as you can fill your lungs with that will cause a stretching sensation. That's how much you fill your lungs. And it should take about three or four seconds, meaning one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. So you fill your lungs completely, and that's the top of the square. The first side of the square is the hold. So here you're holding your breath as if you're underwater, and it should be at least as long as it took to go in, if not longer. So for myself, takes me about three 1,000 to fill, and then I like to hold it for about four or five 1,000, so longer than it took to fill. Now the bottom of the square is just letting it out. And then the last side of the square is another hold, but it's not as deliberate as the first one where you held your breath. So you go in for about three or four 1,000, feel the stretch, Hold it for about four or five, let it out, and then pause again. With square breathing, it doesn't matter if you go in through your mouth or through your nose, it doesn't matter. And if I'm in a restaurant and something has stressed me out, I can do the square and no one will know that I'm doing it. After you go out, remember that You don't go straight back in, you pause again. I suggest once you've learned how to square breathe, doing one or two squares a night just before you go to sleep so that you can build it into your memory. And then when you actually need it, 
you'll think of the square, you'll remember the square as an option. And again, you only need one or two in the moment. Okay, now that you've learned how to use your body, some ways to use your body to move out of the stressful physical state, you're ready to learn a coping strategy that's mental to get relief from your thoughts about the unknown that might be plaguing you. First, take the time to think about and write down what it is that you're really worried about. How are the worry thoughts coming through that brain of yours? Are they repeat images? Are they sounds of your own voice? Stop for one or two minutes and put a little bit of distance uh, between you and your thoughts and notice what it is that's coming through and how the thoughts are coming through. Next, fearlessly identify what is the worst case scenario that you're really worried about. Rather than avoiding thinking about it, bring that worst case to the forefront of your consciousness and write it down in a sentence. It's in there, in that brain. And it's going to be helpful to draw it out. It'll be helpful to turn it over and to take a look at it. Here's an example. Linda, a manager, knew that her company was getting ready for significant layoffs. As she imagined that she might lose her job, she felt a sense of dread, as if she could never cope with what came next. This is often the case. As we worry about the unknown, we feel this nebulous dread. I asked her to think of a few sentences to describe her worst case scenarios. One of the sentences floating around her head was, if I'm laid off, I will never find a job again. I asked her, from a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most, during your worst moments of anxiety, how truthful does that sentence feel? If I'm laid off, I will never find a job again. She said in her worst moments, an eight. I next asked her, if a panel of 12 reasonable people were to look at that sentence and rate how likely it was to come true, how would they rate it? She thought for a moment and answered, a three. This is common when we're worrying about the unknown, that our bodies overestimate the likelihood of our worst case scenarios coming true. In fact, Linda has excellent experience, great reviews, and a good network. Linda's story reminds me of a quote by Mark Twain. Worry is like paying interest on a debt you don't owe. I also like the example of how worry is like being afraid of a fire that might happen and greeting that fire and feeling that fire with all of the angst and pain of it. Fire! When that fire may never happen. In this case, Linda would find a job again. 
But then we needed to look at one more thing for her to put her worry in proper perspective. I asked her, if you lost your job, what would be your first next step? She said, I'll begin applying for and networking for a new job. So as a review, if you find yourself spending a lot of time and energy worrying about an unknown, think about one to three different worst case scenarios that you're worried about that you think might happen. Write them down in sentences. For each sentence, ask these three questions. Number one, from one to 10 in your worst moments of anxiety, how likely does it feel like this will come true? Number two, if a panel of 12 reasonable people were to look at it from one to 10, how likely would they say it would come true? And lastly, number three, if this worst case scenario does in fact come true, what's your first next step to deal with it? The last question's important. It reminds us that should it happen, you pick up and you take a next step. There's a phenomenon that when humans are facing two bad choices, and this has been studied by psychologists that specialize in decision-making, when there are two paths in front of us and both options don't seem that great, we tend to freeze and not make any decision at all. As we imagine our worst case scenarios coming true in our minds, there might be a like a cliff drop where all options stop. That's how we feel. We feel like, wow, if this comes true, we don't see anything. We just see blackness because it's so scary. But the last question which is, if the worst case scenario does come true, what's your next step to deal with it? It reminds us, even if there's a baby step, there is a step that comes next. And that question helps us to recognize that in most cases, there's more after that cliff. There are steps on the other side of that cliff for one step at a time. Worry about the unknown can take up our precious time and energy. We might feel like the worry is going to help us control the outcome, but chances are constantly worrying is wasting our time. If, in fact, your worry includes some useful planning, then I suggest containing the worry to a 20-minute period of your day where you write down and plan at the same time. For example, you might decide that eight o'clock is going to be your worry time and you will worry from eight to 8.20 p.m. as you write down your worries accompanied by plans and ideas. These are just a few practical steps that psychology has to offer for productively dealing with the unknown. I hope to offer more in a part two to this topic in a later podcast. Best wishes with taking steps to break out of unnecessary worry. My hope is that in doing so, you'll be able to conserve time and energy and instead use it towards your most important and most nourishing commitments. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Alexandra Miller. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude, even when things don't go exactly as planned, and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.